I just wanted to see what I could do. Could I fly? Was I was I being held back by the resources? Can I can I do better work for San Francisco and for the Bay Area if, if I have more power behind me? That was journalist Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez. I'm Jeff. Welcome to Storied San Francisco, a weekly podcast where San Franciscans from all walks of life share their stories, and you get to know your neighbors. In this podcast, Joe picks up where he left off in part one, with his time in the journalism program at City College. His first journalism job was at the Bay Guardian, and when that paper folded, he was able to find work fairly quickly at the San Francisco Examiner, where he reported and wrote an opinion column for several years. His tenure at the Examiner ended last month when Joe started reporting and writing for KQED News. Here's Joe. And I never graduated from City College. I went up to a, I, I actually, when I was at City College, um, my journalism teacher's name is Juan Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the department head oh, there. Yeah. You know Juan? I know of him. He's great. He, um, one of the first stories he did um, when he was starting journalism in San Francisco, he started a paper in the mission called El Tecolote. Yeah. And um, one of the first stories he did was about how 911 in San Francisco didn't have Spanish language access. Mm. And he just made tons of calls and he was talking to people who had tried to make calls in Spanish and who had loved ones die. And um, he, he very much imbued in me the idea that the idea of objective journalism in some ways is a very privileged idea perpetrated by white journalists mm-hmm. who have the ability, um, maybe upper middle class journalists who have the ability and is actually was generated in journalism's history when journalism became a more middle-class endeavor before before when journalists were super low paid and non-union and living by the skin of their teeth the the object the objectivity part was not was not a part of journalists mo um and so he, he very much imbued in me the idea that you know people of color very much very often uh do uh advocacy journalism and that that's perfectly fine, and it's a totally different thing than the type of other journalism that might be the mainstream. Right. And uh, so one of the first things I did at City College was when the, there was a, um, a rule that was going to be handed down at the state level, uh, at the community college uh, state kind of board level, mm-hmm. um, and they were the community college board of directors, and they were going to make institute a change to 112 community colleges in California that would have restricted access for students who'd been in the system for longer than two years mm-hmm. to get into classes. And um, just the idea that we gotta pump them through, we gotta pump them through. If you take longer than two years, sorry, you're out of luck. You're gonna be deprioritized. And hello, I've been in journalism for, I had been at City College for like four years or five years at that point, because I was working two jobs and paying my rent and my parents didn't have enough money to give me to you know, just go to school and get through in two years. And what's going to happen to all those single parents that don't have that ability? That's insane. Yep. Um, so I wrote a front page editorial against it, but I also had my newsroom call every community college newsroom up and down the state. And we coordinated a 35 newspaper front page editorial in Whoa. the same week against this thing. Whoa. and galvanized thousands of people to go up to the state and combat that new rule. 
Fucking awesome. Yeah, it was pretty fun. <laughs> Jeez. When, uh, just real quickly, when would that have been? Early 2000s? Uh, yeah, Late, like mid, 20, mid to... Yeah, 2010, 2011. Oh, okay. I never graduated college. I didn't, gra- I transferred to state and I never graduated state. I got hired in journalism before ever graduating. And wow. I could, I could give two flying fucks. Like, yeah. I, I'm... I, I was in school a very long time. I've learned a lot of things. I don't think I need a a badge or a the piece of paper to say you're a journalist. But that was actually the moment that I met my most key journalism mentor. Because when I spoke to the board of governors, I was telling them how I had you know um, mentors at the San Francisco Chronicle and the Bay Guardian and elsewhere. And I had some people that I was talking to from those places, but you know, they weren't like super involved and um, higher education reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. And then that Asimov heard my speech. She stopped me and she gave me her card and said, Hey, I'd like to help journalism mentees and I want to teach you the ropes. And I was really moved by what you said and let me help you. And she was super hands-on, really hands-on. And she schooled me and uh, okay. never weren't. And, if it weren't for organizing those, those protests and going up there and speaking, and I would never have met Nanette, and Nanette never would have set me up for success. So you mentioned that you were still, you, so you went from City College to State uh, for a little bit, but then you eventually got hired, and was that at the Examiner, or what, what was? Uh, no, it was at the San Francisco Bay Guardian, uh, oh. and then that Meishi Meishi Rest in Peace, which closed in 2014, but... Uh, yeah, I was, uh, I had, City College had a thing where they made you write for a bunch of neighborhood papers, so like the Richmond Review or Ingleside Light or Westside Observer. Um, and um, so I'd been published a little bit in that respect, but uh, hadn't had any big newspaper breakouts yet. And then I was at SF State and um, I entered into a program run by the former District 2 supervisor candidate, Kat Anderson, mm-hmm. who, who started a journalism program with the San Francisco Chronicles Union, the Guild. Mm. And it was to teach students union reporting, how to report about workers. Okay. And I got in that, I was in their first inaugural program. And, and uh, that's where I met Tim Redmond and um, Stephen T. Jones, the then editor and news editor of The Guardian. And they said they were in a, they were talking to us, this whole group about, um, but, and this is while I was at City College still. Um, and, and they were like, hey, City College is going through this accreditation crisis that just kind of came out of nowhere. And we don't know what's happening with it. We don't have any education reporters who knows what's going on. I wish we had one. And I said, <laughs> I've been reporting on it for two years because I take entirely too long to get through school. And so <laughs> I've been at our college paper for about two years now, which is crazy. Uh, but uh, let me report for you. And they said, okay. <laughs> and so I, Tim Redmond recruited me his last year at the Bay Guardian, and uh, I was a freelancer there. And when I moved over to SF State, I got to pitch my first story for the Examiner, which was about a, um, a young man, an 18-year-old kid, uh, who was trying to get into a fraternity there, and he drank himself to death. Mm. And there was all sorts of cover-ups about it. The fraternity didn't want to talk. This college didn't put any public announcements out. Um, and so I had some good sourcing at state. 
yeah. even just being there a little bit. And uh, I sold my first story to the examiner and it was about this kid who drank himself to death. And, Jeez. Uh, and I was only able to do it because I was freelancing for the Big Guardian too. Mm-hmm. And I was so lucky, uh, Max the Nike uh, at the examiner was mm-hmm. uh, the editor, uh, news editor there at the time had me freelancing to cover for different reporters when they were out on vacation or out sick or whatever. So did that paid article that the examiner bought from you, is that what led to your uh, job there? Yeah, uh, so they apparently both the Guardian and the Examiner both wanted to hire me around that same time. And it just happened that the Guardian invited me first. I was um, still a student at State, but I think I was like 26 at this point, maybe. Okay. Um, 25 or 26. And uh, I'm getting a beer with Stephen T. Jones, the, the news editor. He, as you do. Had, yeah, you know, <laughs> as you do. At Zeitgeist. Okay, I was going to guess. Yeah, that's a good guess. Well, he fucking lived across the street. You're like, where, where's <laughs> Stephen? Where's Stephen? Just go to Zeitgeist. <laughs> just, yeah, like, Please, I, just, where could he possibly be? <laughs> and, you know, Stephen T. Jones with his wacky blue hair and his loud personality and and so we're getting fucking drunk and and he goes joe why do you freelance for the examiner and the guardian don't you have any loyalty man (laughs) you should you should just be writing for us and then i remember very distinctly i took out my my cellular telephone i queued up my bank account and it had 17 dollars in it yeah and i showed it to him and and he says oh he has this (laughs) way of saying Oh, when he's wrong, which I love. And, and he goes, well, then I guess you're hired tomorrow. Oh. I can't make that stick permanently just, you know, by snapping my fingers, but I'll try to make it happen and I'll hire you on as temporarily uh, tomorrow, starting tomorrow. And nice. I never left. And I was in the door and the examiner was right there. The weekly was right there. Such an interesting cast of characters with yes. was there. The ever, the ever amazing Joe Eskenazi was still yep. at SF Weekly. Mm-hmm. And Rachel Swan, who is now a transit reporter for the Chronicle, she was at SF Weekly too. The Guardian had moved in with the Examiner and the Weekly, and we were all in the Standard Oil building on Sutter, um, which is right by Montgomery Bart, like you know, right. behind the what's the what's the bar there? Um, Sutter Station. Sutter Station is like just behind it. Got it. I remember like when I first kind of got hired at the examiner a little later, I was so proud to go in the local edition and get a drink and they're all in the newsboy <laughs> outfits. And then I noticed that the cocktails were like thirteen dollars. Yeah, $13, yeah no one could afford them. <laughs> no, not at all. No and journalists. Like, no journalists can yes. afford it. All started, the other exactly, exactly. And I started talking about news with the bartenders. They're like, I don't care, dude. I'm like, that's oh, fine. Gosh, yeah, you're like ruin, ruin the dream. They're like, was it on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> Did you ride out the Bay Guardian? Were you there when I was there until the end? I I was, I got to have a lot of fun at the Bay Guardian. Um, I got to, I feel like I really got to feel like more community journalism under my feet at the Bay Guardian. I spent a lot of time with like, ah, it was really interesting because the Bay Guardian really taught me more so than anything in my recent years, the divide between the old school progressive circles and my born and raised San Francisco circles. And there's a lot of different born and raised San Francisco circles. There's, and I've always wanted to do like 
a podcast maybe or a zine set of zines on the different circles that exist of the yes. born and raised experience yeah different class experiences different oh God, ethnic yeah. experiences neighborhood yep. experiences but it was interesting because like you know the there 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 are journalism outfit that you know is kind of born out of san francisco progressivism and linked with it um but you know i remember distinctly you know editors there telling me we don't write about sf public schools if you want to have at it but it's not really a thing i'm interested in and you know like that kind of thing like you know like they didn't have you know there was there's not a big interest in in that and so i i started writing about um bullying in public schools and um new restorative justice practices that were affecting communities of color they were helping you know young black and brown kids who were usually like kicked out or suspended or whatever or um uh helping them to heal with mm. the people that they had conflict with that was one of the earliest stories that did big stories did there and i got to write these big beautiful like 1200 2000 word stories that took me a week to do and got to talk to everyone and go out to people's homes and uh what a luxury now in this covid right <laughs> right um, but uh yeah like i remember talking to this family um these parents and their second grader who when the second grader was in kindergarten the young black boy had the police called on him mm -hmm. in kindergarten right in kindergarten because that's how we deal with discipline of young boys of color even I want, in kindergarten i want to be surprised but <laughs> i know right it's terrible <laughs> Um, and the person who was pushing those restorative practice um, techniques actually is now a supervisor, is Matt Haney. <laughs> so you kind of, in, in, you, you almost um, invented these beats for the Bay Guardian, sounds oh, like. completely. I was their yeah. only reporter and I was their last reporter. I was there for oh. a year. I was, okay. the, I was the San Francisco Bay Guardian's last reporter hire and I was the last reporter there at all. I, I remember very clearly in one piece i was kind of poking fun at mayor edley's mustache amidst making fun <laughs> policies and marky pulls me aside and says joe don't make fun of the mayor's mustache you don't know who's it don't don't say don't say people don't find it attractive uh, i said something like his so i had made some joke about it right he's like you don't know who's into mustaches some people are very, very into mustaches <laughs> I'm like, fair. oh fair, fair enough fair fair and it's like little moments like that that Marky brought to me that like opened up my eyes to the, to, to to my to a kind of heteronormative view yep. of things, which was definitely like a uh, a blind spot of mine. Let's let's talk about that. So moving from the Guardian to the Examiner, how did that come about? Ah, oh, you're yeah. just like, so, well, I'm well, we're done. I'm gonna go across the hall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember because it wasn't that long ago that I covered like my first big story for the Guardian. I felt all really cool. I'm like a real reporter. So we just covered the very first Google bus protest. Right. Oh yeah. And yeah. And I was one of the only two journalists invited to that. So my video of the Google bus protest was fucking New York times and Fox news and everything and CNN. And it was fucking everywhere. And, and we felt on top of the world, our, our coverage was so viewed that it broke the Bay Guardian's website. Yes. Like our website, our website literally could not handle the crushing loads of traffic. Um, yeah, it was, it was nuts. Um, but the, um, but then it wasn't too long after um, that uh, Marky and Steve were notified that there would be a meeting the morning, the next morning uh, 
at ye old SF Media Company, which is mm-hmm. the umbrella company that owns SF Weekly, the San Francisco Examiner, and used to own the San Francisco Bay Guardian. Mm-hmm. And um, the next morning, we found that all of our emails were shut off, and um, we had no access to them. And uh, we were sat down in the middle of a room and told by the publisher at the time, Glenn Zules, um, that uh, that's it, finito. And we just wow. packed boxes, and that was it. Were you bummed? But I was incredibly bummed. Uh, this yeah. was, uh, I mean, I had, it, there was a lot of things that Big Guardian taught me, but the other thing that it taught me was that there are things that the Chronicle misses, and there are things that mainstream media can miss. And even in a city as small as San Francisco, seven by seven, with less than a million people, there are still stories that need to be told that those mainstream outlets will not tell. Uh, even the examiner at the time would miss. And, mm-hmm. and I felt like there, there were like communities I grew up with that were not being seen. Yep. And that were so, and you know, I always felt like I was a weird bridge because I was of those communities. I grew up in those communities, but I also grew up in the, with a foot in the privileged world of the Marina. Mm-hmm. And so having one foot in each of those worlds, I felt like I was uniquely positioned to tell those stories and to empathize with the people who are in those communities I grew up with mm-hmm. and get their stories out there. Not that someone from somewhere else can't tell those stories. Absolutely they can and they do. But, you know, like I, like I saw which ones needed to be told. I saw which ones were being ignored. And right. so for the big guardian to go, my outlet for doing that, I was so bummed. Um, but then immediately after the, How- the editor of the examiner, Michael Howard invited me into his, um, into his office, uh, me and Emma Silvers, who was the music editor, and gave us both jobs, or uh, wow. offered us both jobs. Yeah. He, he offered me a job at the Examiner with the idea that I would become a columnist and kind of carry on mm. the Vague Guardian's ethos in mm-hmm. that column, which is why I started calling it On Guard, mm. and um, to honor the Guardian. And then yeah. uh, Emma Silvers uh, was uh, SF Weekly, uh, joined the SF Weekly. All the communities I grew up in. <clears throat> were uh, um, uh, taking muni everywhere. Like that's that's just what I grew up with. Everyone mm-hmm. took muni. And so when I got to the transit beat, everyone wrote about BART. And there's a really good reason you write about BART in the Bay Area. Because if you write about BART and meters in, or viewers or listeners in Oakland and San Jose and whatever, uh, we'll all read about BART, we'll listen about BART. But twice as many people take muni. 400,000 daily riders on BART, um, 720,000 daily riders on Muni. So there's a lot of San Franciscans who are taking it, a lot of people from elsewhere who are taking it, and it barely got any coverage. So I started pummeling the hell out of the the Muni beat to the point where the Chronicle took its transit reporter off the beat, moved him somewhere else, and and got someone who was more competitive, Rachel Swan, and put her on that. Um, Yeah. And and she started, and they shifted. They used to they used to only the Chronicle used to only really cover Bart, and I think very based on my conversations with the people at the paper, very at the Chronicle, very much in response to my reporting, they started focusing more on me. Fuck yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> way to way to rustle feathers at, at our paper of record. I love doing it. Awesome, it. Uh, it's fun to do, um, <laughs> and I did it often. Um, and I, one of the bigger stories, I would say, at the Examiner in terms of that transit beat, but I did two, two, two bigger stories. 
One was seeing the number of buses missing runs all across the system in 2018. Yeah. And if this was BART, and BART had uh, 40% or 50% of its service not running, you would see it. You'd see thousands of people at stations. Your eyeballs would let you know. Yeah. But because Muni is so dispersed, you know, you, the 5 Fulton is not running right. The 43 Masonic's not running right. The 28's not running right. Uh, the 29's not running right. You know, all these lines, and everyone thinks, oh, it's just my route today. It's just right. my route. Sucks. Right. But when enough people started telling me about it, I started going, that's too many different lines experiencing too many different things. So I did records requests for their, what they call not outs, which is a list of how many buses did not make it out that day. And it was amazing. It was essentially a service reduction of a huge magnitude of like, I wouldn't say 50%, but like huge enough, like 25 or 30%, huge enough that you know, the, the muni service was terrible across the city. It was worse than you could even imagine. You, you, hour long waits, half hour long waits across the board. And it was because of a contract that Muni had with its operators. Willie Brown had successfully um, negotiated this contract, but Willie Brown was too successful. He shortchanged the operators and made it from a two-step to full pay to five, a two-year step to a five-year step, and their pay was far lower. Mm. So all the drivers were learning to drive from Muni, taking their Class B licenses, and going to drive Google buses. Wow just getting the hell out of Dodge and we didn't have enough bus drivers. And did you already know that part of it? That they were going I, to Google buses? I I knew a bit about it because a year before I had written a story about how the operators were not happy with the contract. And one operator who was like a guy who lived out in the Bayview in a multi multi-generational house was like, yeah, I I can't afford to buy my daughter a birthday cake this year. Jeez. And and um I don't know what to do. I barely have enough money to keep food on her plate normally. And, um, and so I knew that something was wrong with that contract. I knew operators were leaving. And that was in, that was in 2016 when I first wrote that story. And then it wasn't until 2018 that we started seeing the effects of that contract manifest. Right. And, and that's when the buses started not showing up. And then it wasn't until 2019 that the operators were able to successfully negotiate for a better contract. And they only did it because the city, the uh, budget legislative analyst, reconstructed my work. They took all my research. They took all the leads that I found. And they, with their bigger resources team, set into it for months and found out how many operators were leaving, how many of them went and drove Google buses and went elsewhere with our knowledge that we gave them, um, just how terrible the service has been to and it was even worse than what I had found because they found more details and it was devastating. And so the city said, fuck it, give them everything they want. And Whoa. basically gave Muni operators the rosiest contract you ever saw. And so hopefully when this pandemic is over and Muni service is restored, we're going to see those levels come back to levels we haven't seen before, largely because of all that, all those changes and, uh, and that 2018 story. I, for one, want to thank you because I, I, I do think you're an excellent reporter and I don't think that's going to change, but I want to quickly shift gears to what, what was it wanting to move on and do something different? What was the motivation to look for a new job? 
I mean, there's a there's a million things, right? Like I money wise, I'm privileged enough to be in a, a rent controlled apartment that I've been in that my grandfather had since pre like since 2003 so the rent is great i'm fine i had for a long time been really set to say you know what if i am a san francisco examiner following this until the day i leave journalism i will be a happy Mm. human being Mm -hmm. um and then i think the ambition of the stories i wanted to do changed Mm. like the stories i just said to you like no i've things like that before i left the examiner i did i was doing an investigation into um muhammad nuru the former public works director who Mm -hmm. the fbi was investigating and Mm -hmm. um and into his allegedly directing cash from city contractors into a charity uh for children a charity a baseball charity for children that ostensibly was to get um to get uh, uh, baseball mitts and bats into the hands of kids, but instead, right. um, it was used. It was used to get city contractors to give them money into the charity, and then for Nick Bovis from Lefty O'Doul's to put on the the restaurant Lefty O'Doul's to put on lavish right. parties for city workers. Right, like that's that's not a baseball charity in nope. action, and and um, in order to do that story at the Examiner, I had to work two or three weekends straight through Mm. i had to work nights i had to work mornings early mornings i had to do regular daily reporting in the middle of all that like in in a perfect world or in a more resourced place i could have said all right i need two weeks to do the best job on this possible this is uh, major implications for city contracts for millions of dollars in city contracts for city workers, for department heads who are potentially in on this illegal scheme. And am I wrong that it might have touched the mayor's office? It absolutely might have touched the mayor's office. The mayor. And we still um, don't know. We, um, there are some things um, uh, I reported later on that the restaurateur who set up the shady baseball charity was asked by uh, associates of London Breed and where London Breed was copied on her personal Gmail was copied on it to make donations on her behalf to the um, um, African-American Cultural Arts Complex, which she's mm-hmm. to be the director of, and that she, uh, um, Nick Bovis also uh, was asked to pay for her pride float when she was a supervisor. And just the fact that such a weighty, needy story would come across my desk and I could not take the time to do it. After five years of not having the resources, if I were at somewhere with the resources, I could have taken two weeks and really reported not only the hell out of that story, but gotten every follow-up, every connected follow-up. I could have investigated the nonprofits connected to it. I, that that later, actually, Jackson Vanderbeck and, and Michael Blott at, at uh, NBC Bay Area, um, they, um, they did a follow-up that I knew was there. <laughs> the shady contracts related to the first story I did. But this time, instead of the Nick Bovis Charity Foundation, it was basically the same story, but with a nonprofit that donates to city parks. Okay. And and they were basically doing the same thing. They had. And the, I knew it was there. They had the re, they had the twenty five hours in a day. There was four bylines or, on that story. There was oh, four bylines wow. on that story. 
Is that more reporters than the examiner had? That's the exact amount of reporters the examiner has. <laughs> Total. Yeah. Total. Okay. That's how many reporters they had on that story. And a I picture like, is starting to emerge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not the pay. It's not even the pace, although that's a little bit of it. I just wanted to see what I could do. Could I fly? Was I, was I being held back by the resources? Can I, can I do better work for San Francisco and for the Bay Area if, if I have more power behind me, more, 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 um, more people, more, more heads together on an idea or a story? I mean, what, what could I do then? If I could do this at the examiner, what could I do at KKD? That, that was kind of the driving force behind it. I just wanted so- to do the work. So did KQED approach you or did you already have that thought in mind that you just described and reach out to them? Or or are you allowed to say? I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but heck with it. Um, Over the years, I've been on KQED a number of times um, for my examiner articles. And it was the first time the examiner was on KQED so regularly in a long time because we were breaking all sorts of stories all of a sudden. And, um, and, uh, Every once in a while, someone who was interviewing me would say, "Hey, have you ever thought about coming here? Well, mm. you know, you do good work. You should, you should be over here." And I said, "Nah, nah, nah. that was usually my answer. Mm-hmm. It was like a non-committal set of grunts." <laughs> <laughs> but then I think after that investigation into Bovis and Nuru, I, I think someone said it again. And I forget who it was, to be honest. But um, someone said it again, and they and just the clock started, so the wheels started turning. I was like, "Yeah, actually." This time, I said, "Yeah, actually." So, what are you doing at KQET? I by the time this is out, I will officially be a online uh, producer, and basically that means uh, a weekend online producer. So I'm working weekends. I'm kind of taking my one-man band ethos, and I'm going to work with like a, a small crew of weekend people who report the hell out of stories, and basically are KQED on the weekends and mm-hmm. um, and during the week leading up to the weekends, and um, and I'm going to be writing. I'm going to be writing, and I'm going to be uh, doing some social media uh, stuff as well. So you know, you'll see me on Twitter going, "Hey, have you seen your?" Have you been un- unable to pay your rent during the, the COVID-19 pandemic? Are you worried what will happen once the rent, once the eviction freeze is over? Come talk to us at KQED, be a source, you know, that kind of thing. And then I'll also be writing up stories. On the weekend. We have so much good stuff. I think we should probably wrap up. But before we do, I want to get, I, so our theme this season, we're in our third season, our theme this season is love letters to the city. I happen to think that your work speaks for itself and your work is your love letter to the city. I appreciate that. Is that accurate? And is there more, if like, you know, if you were asked, Joe, here's a piece of paper and a pen, write your love letter to San Francisco. I guess my love letter to San Francisco I kind of wrote it in my end piece and maybe I'll, I'll borrow it a little bit. You know, um, a lot of people will, will tell you it's about the, the people and the community, but my love letter to San Francisco has always been 
being a bullhorn for the community, like to the best of my ability, to saying there are some people that need a voice elevated and trying to help them elevate it. Um, and and I, I often think of Harvey Milk's bullhorn. I know that there's some chatter that it, and, and some people who were there say that it was only used a few times, but I still think it's a very powerful, iconic image, mm -hmm. Harvey with that bullhorn. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what he was doing was being, was elevating the voice of his community. And I'm, I'm, I try to do that. Like my, my focus as a reporter has really been uh, the transit that my, that I know that the communities I grew up with depend on every day. Um, Chinatown and the Asian communities all throughout San Francisco who are often ignored by mainstream media and um, who exist in a bifurcated media landscape with Chinese language newspapers and alternate language newspapers and bringing their concerns into the English speaking world. Um, uh, communities of color, brown and black communities who have their, see their culture erased. I mean, hell, I even wrote about hat collectors in that world. And I think that was great. That was really fun. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and police, um, you know, I, I'm not an every week police writer, but when um, police work touches on the community, like the death of Alex Nieto, who was a, um, a young man shot on Bernal Heights Hill, who was a high school classmate of mine, like being able to try to tell that story, not from the outside looking in, but as a member of that community, trying right. to explain it to everyone else. Like, this man was a man I knew. Let me tell you what happened from that perspective. Like, mm -hmm. So that I think that love letter is trying to elevate those communities and those voices and to, and to make sure that they're heard, to make sure they're known, to make sure they're not erased. Um, I mean, I think a lot of us from the city feel like a, a lot of our experiences are being erased. And the love letter is telling San Francisco uh, who who it is, telling them, telling them who who uh, telling San Francisco who San Francisco is, and making sure that that story isn't lost. That was Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez. Join us next week when we'll get to know Fleetwood owner Nico Schwederman. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. The show is hosted and produced by me, Jeff Hunt. Our website is storiedsf.com, where you can browse more than 100 episodes and help support us by buying merch from our store. And now, for a limited time, 50% of our proceeds will go to the Give to SF Fund, which helps out San Franciscans in need during the coronavirus shelter in place. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you see an option to rate and review what we do, we'd sure appreciate it. And if you have any feedback or people you think should be on the podcast, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy and stay safe. Mm -hmm.